Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. It is the week of November 23rd, 2020. I'm Dan Lage, back again here on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast, giving you your update for criminal law as it comes down from the appellate and Supreme Courts here in Connecticut. Happy Thanksgiving. Let's get right to it. We've got two cases, both from the appellate court. We're going to start with a case called State versus Parker. Your citation is AC 43344. It is a decision written by Judge Prescott and officially released on November 24th, 2020. Here are your facts. Our defendant had previously pleaded guilty to various offenses, including burglary and larceny, and was thereafter sentenced to probation. As a condition of his probation, the court ordered the defendant to make restitution in the amount of more than $18,000. Thereafter, he was charged with additional offenses and for violating certain terms of his probation, not involving the payment of restitution to which he pleaded guilty. The trial court continued the defendant's probation. In the months that followed, the defendant paid a total of $850 in restitution. The state thereafter charged the defendant with violation of probation for failure to pay restitution. The trial court revoked the defendant's probation having determined on the basis of the defendant's prior statements made to the court at his first probation revocation hearing that the defendant had the ability and the willingness to pay and would make sufficient efforts to pay but had failed to do so. On appeal, the defendant claimed that one, the court improperly revoked his probation for failure to pay restitution without first making a finding that such failure to pay was willful as constitutionally required pursuant to Bearden versus Georgia, 461 United States 660, and two, the state introduced insufficient evidence to prove that the defendant willfully refused to pay restitution. So let's get into it. The first claim, the requisite finding of willfulness, and here are the party's arguments. So regarding that first claim, the defendant argued that the trial court improperly revoked his probation for failure to pay restitution without making the requisite finding that such failure to pay was willful pursuant to Bearden. 
The defendant specifically argued that the court did not make a finding that he willfully refused to pay restitution because the court, one, stated that, quote, the state need only establish that the probationer knew the condition and engaged in conduct that violated the condition. Two, the trial court based its finding that the defendant violated his probation on statements made by the defendant at his previous probation revocation hearing, which statements were immaterial to the issue of whether he violated his probation during the new probationary period that began thereafter. Third, never mentioned willfulness in the context of of discussing the defendant's January 18th, 2018 statements prior to this most recent probation hearing, nor made any connection between those statements and its finding that the defendant willfully refused to pay restitution thereafter. And four, subsequently found the defendant indigent in connection with this appeal. Although the state of Connecticut conceded that the trial court made no finding, at least no explicit finding of willfulness, it contended that the court made an implicit finding, which it argued was constitutionally sufficient, and that on appeal, the appellate court must presume that the trial court applied the correct legal standard in support of its contention. The state pointed to the fact that, one, the parties told the court that willfulness was the contested issue. Two, the court expressed an understanding that the defendant was claiming that his failure to pay was not willful. And three, the defendant did not file a motion for articulation in the absence of which this court must presume that the trial court acted properly. In response, the defendant maintained that the trial court did not make an implicit finding of willfulness, and even if it did, an express finding was required to satisfy the defendant's 14th Amendment right to due process and equal protection. So the appellate court in this case stated that the issue presented a question of law and was subject to plenary review. Regarding the revocation of probation hearings, the evidence must induce a reasonable belief that it is more probable than not that the defendant has violated a condition of his or her probation, citing state versus Durant, 94, Connecticut Appellate, 219. Moreover, pursuant to the Bearden case, it is unconstitutional to revoke probation absent evidence and findings that the defendant was somehow responsible for the failure, and in this case, the failure to pay. So, the appellate court ultimately agreed with the defendant and held that the trial court erred in revoking the defendant's probation for failure to make restitution payments as the court did not apply the correct legal standard and erred in making an implicit finding of willfulness. The appellate court stated that in Connecticut, it has been acknowledged judiciously, both in cases and throughout its adopted rules of practice, that a finding that a defendant had the ability to pay and willfully failed to do so is a prerequisite to incarceration for the failure to pay a fine. Now, there's a footnote here that listeners should be aware of. For instance, practice book section 4317 provides that, quote, no person shall be incarcerated as a result of failure to pay a fine unless the judicial authority first inquires as to the person's ability to pay the fine. In addition, practice book 4318 provides that the judicial authority may, upon a finding that the defendant is able to pay the fine and that the non-payment is willful, order the defendant incarcerated for non-payment of the fine. So in this case, the appellate court reasoned that in order to follow such prerequisite, the trial court was required 
to make explicit findings on the record that the defendant had the ability to pay and, if so, whether the failure to pay was willful and, if not, whether the defendant made sufficient bona fide efforts legally to acquire the resources to pay. So the trial court had explicitly stated that the basis for its determination was the defendant's previous statement in the previous probation revocation hearing that the continuation of extension of his probation, quote, will help me pay the restitution so now I can actually pay it, end quote, and explain that this statement amounted to an indication that the defendant could actually pay. So the appellate court, however, explained that this reasoning implied that the trial court did not correctly apply the legal standard as, quote, the trial court cannot make the constitutionally requisite finding that the defendant was at fault for the failure to pay restitution unless it determines that the defendant, at the time he failed to make the required payments, either had the ability to pay and willfully chose not to, or that the defendant did not have the ability to pay and failed to make sufficient bona fide efforts legally to acquire the resources to pay, end quote, pursuant to the Bearden case. The appellate court here in Parker further stated that the defendant's previous statements would have been best understood as an expression of an intention to pay going forward rather than the admission that he had the actual ability to do so. The appellate court further held that even if the trial court interpreted the defendant's previous statements as an admission that he had the ability to pay, the court was still required to inquire into the reasons for the defendant's failure to pay and whether he nonetheless failed to make good faith efforts to acquire legally the resources to pay. The court reasoned that the evidence did not logically support the conclusion that the defendant had the ability to pay restitution during his probationary period because there was no evidence that he had any source of income or other assets that could be applied toward that restitution. And because the court did not take into consideration the actual efforts the defendant made to acquire the resources to pay during the probation period and instead improperly based its conclusion that the defendant violated probation on the mere fact that he expressed an intention to make sufficient efforts. The court failed to make the necessary finding that the defendant's failure to pay was willful. Now, because the appellate court concluded that the trial court's judgment should be set aside for failure to make a finding of willfulness, the court stated that it was not necessary to reach the defendant's second claim that the state introduced insufficient evidence to prove that the defendant willfully refused to pay restitution. Now that brings us to this other issue about whether or not there was the need for the explicit finding of willfulness. So the appellate court considered that even if it were to conclude that the court made the implicit finding that the defendant's failure to pay restitution was willful, whether a trial court in Connecticut is required to make an explicit finding on the record that the failure to pay was willful before it revokes probation. So the court here noted that although neither the United States Supreme Court nor the Supreme Court here in Connecticut explicitly have addressed this issue, the court concluded that an explicit finding is required to satisfy the defendant's 14th Amendment rights based on principles set forth in the following cases. So in State v. Davis, 229, Connecticut 285, the Supreme Court stated that, quote, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution requires 
that certain minimum procedural safeguards be observed in the process of revoking the conditional liberty that's created by probation. This is so because the loss of liberty entailed is a serious deprivation requiring that the probationer be accorded due process. End quote. Moreover, the United States Supreme Court has recognized among the minimum procedural safeguards that must be observed in proceeding to revoke probation is the requirement of a, quote, written statement by the fact finders as to the evidence relied on and the reasons for revoking probation. The court cited Gagnon versus Scarpelli, 411 United States 778, which therein cited Morrissey versus Brewer, 408 United States 471. Accordingly, the appellate court here held that the trial court is required to make explicit findings on the record as to whether the probationer had the ability to pay, and if so, whether the failure to pay was willful, and if not, whether that probationer made sufficient bona fide efforts legally to acquire the resources to pay. And so the court ultimately reasoned that in light of the constitutional significance of the interests at stake, when probation is revoked for failure to pay restitution, it is imperative that the trial court engages in the appropriate inquiry into the reasons for the failure to pay and makes the accurate, quote unquote, findings regarding whether the defendant was, quote, somehow responsible for the failure. So a rare win for criminal defendants here in Connecticut. Willful findings, explicit willful findings by the trial court are necessary in failure to pay restitution cases before probation is revoked. Let's move on to our next case. We have for you State versus Knox, K-N-O-X. Your citation is twofold, AC41168 and AC41644, Consolidated Appeals, a decision authored by Judge Alexander, recently promoted to the appellate court, the former chief administrative judge of the criminal division here in Connecticut, officially released on November 24th, 2020. Here are your facts. And by way of background, this case involves two separate appeals filed by the respective parties. In connection with a shooting death, the defendant, his name is Ricky Lamont Knox, was charged by the state and convicted with the crimes of criminal possession of a firearm and tamping, tampering with physical evidence and uh, with being a persistent felony offender. The state appealed from the trial court who granted the defendant's motion for judgment of acquittal regarding the crime of tampering and the defendant appealed from the conviction of the crime of possession of a firearm. So with that, here are the facts. In October 2015, the defendant, Mr. Anthony Crespo, and some friends were arguing outside a cafe with another group that included the defendant when at some point the defendant brandished a handgun. The victim appeared to reach for a gun in his waistband and the defendant shot the victim who fell to the ground injured. The defendant then fled the scene with his gun and the victim later died as a result of his injuries. Approximately one month after the incident, the defendant was arrested and briefly interviewed by a detective, Stephen Brownell, before invoking his right to counsel, ending the interview. The next day, the defendant informed another officer that he wanted to again speak with Brownell. During this second interview, Brownell informed the defendant of his rights pursuant to Miranda. 
The defendant expressly stated that he understood and waived these rights. During the course of the second interview, the defendant admitted to being outside the cafe at the time of the shooting. Certain statements made by the defendant during his second interview with Brownell were later admitted into evidence. After an investigation, the police arrested the defendant on these charges on October 31st, 2017. After the conclusion of the evidentiary phase of the trial, the defendant filed a motion for a judgment of acquittal as to the charge of tampering with physical evidence. On November 6th, on November 6th 2017, the jury found the defendant guilty of criminal possession of a firearm and tampering with physical evidence and with being a persistent serious felony offender. Thereafter, the trial court granted the defendant's motion for judgment of acquittal as to the charge of tampering, and the state, on the granting of permission, appealed to the appellate court. So this case involves the two appeals as described earlier. Let's go to claim one, and this is on the state's appeal. In the state's appeal, the state claimed that the court improperly granted the defendant's motion for judgment of acquittal with respect to the tampering charge. The court concluded that the state had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant had removed his gun from the crime scene with the intent to hinder a criminal investigation. But the state argued on appeal that it had produced sufficient evidence. The state further contended that the jury could have inferred that the defendant, cognizant of his prior felony convictions, removed the gun for the purpose of avoiding the charge of criminal possession of a firearm. The defendant countered that his prior felony conviction had been admitted into evidence for the limited purpose of establishing an element of the crime of criminal possession of a firearm and could not be used for any other purpose. So in its review, the appellate court set forth the relevant standard stating that, quote, a motion for a judgment of acquittal must be granted if the evidence would not reasonably permit a finding of guilt, end quote. And in ruling on such a motion, the trial court must determine whether a rational trier of fact could find the crime proven beyond a reasonable doubt, citing State versus Naval, 42 Connecticut Appellate, 307. Now, regarding the state's claim, Judge Alexander concluded that the trial court properly granted the defendant's motion for judgment of acquittal as no reasonable trier of fact could have found the defendant guilty of the charge of tampering with physical evidence. The elements of the crime of tampering have been set forth by the Supreme Court, stating that the state must establish that the defendant, one, believed that a criminal investigation was pending or about to be instituted, two, discarded the evidence at issue, and three, acted with the intent to prevent the use of the evidence at a criminal investigation, citing State v. Jordan, 314 Connecticut, 354. The court here reasoned that the state failed to produce any evidence that at the time the defendant departed the scene of the crime, he removed the gun with the intent to impair its availability in a subsequent criminal investigation. The court further reasoned that the evidence merely indicated that the defendant shot the victim and left the scene. And there was no additional evidence that when he left the scene, the defendant took the gun with the intent to prevent its use in the subsequent police investigation. Now, regarding the state's claim that it could rely on the defendant's prior felony conviction to support a finding that the defendant had removed the gun from the scene to avoid the criminal possession of a firearm charge, and then therefore tampered with physical evidence, the court concluded that such a claim was unavailing as evidence of that conviction 
had been admitted by stipulation only for the limited purpose of establishing an element of the crime of criminal possession of a firearm. Let's go to our second claim, and this is on the defendant's appeal. The defendant claimed that his post-arrest statements to Brownell had been obtained after a violation of the prophylactic rule established by our Supreme Court in State v. Purcell, 331, Connecticut 318, and therefore the court should have excluded its statements, his statements from evidence. The defendant also claimed that the court abused its discretion and violated his constitutional rights by admitting into evidence certain inculpatory portions of his police interview and excluding related contextual portions. As to this appeal, the defendant first argued that his statements made to Brownell during that second interview should have been excluded because he made an ambiguous request for counsel that required Brownell to stop the interview and clarify this request pursuant to the Purcell case. In response, the state argues that the defendant did not make an ambiguous request for counsel during that interview with Brownell and therefore the Purcell rule does not apply. The state further argued that Brownell's subsequent questioning was not limited to a clarification of the desire for counsel and that any error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. The appellate court consequently addressed the dispositive question of whether the exchange between the defendant and Brownell constituted an ambiguous or equivocal request so as to trigger the requirement of Purcell that any further questioning was limited to clarifying whether the defendant in fact, wanted to have an attorney present. Now, in its standard of review, the court looked at Purcell, and in that case, the Supreme Court held that, quote, if a suspect makes an equivocal statement that arguably can be construed as a request for counsel, interrogation must cease except for narrow questions designed to clarify the earlier statement and the suspect's desire for counsel. Interrogators confronted with such a situation alternatively may inform the defendant that they understand his statements to mean that he does not wish to speak with them without counsel present and that they will terminate the interrogation. In either case, if the defendant thereafter clearly and unequivocally expresses a desire to continue without counsel present, then the interrogation may resume. Additionally, our Supreme Court has observed, quote, that not every reference to an attorney during custodial interrogation is an invocation of the right to counsel. That case uh, is State versus Shiflet, 199 Connecticut, 718. So in our holding, Judge Alexander concluded that our defendant could not prevail on this claim. And in making its determination, the appellate court here considered whether a reasonable offer under the circumstances could have interpreted Mr. Knox's exchange with Brownell during the second interview as an invocation of the right to counsel. Here, the defendant had reinitiated the communication with police, and Brownell conducted the second interview. Brownell informed the defendant that they had to, quote, go over, end quote, his rights, and the defendant indicated that he did not want to be recorded and he wanted to regain his freedom. The two men also addressed the defendant's concern for his safety and his reluctance to identify certain individuals. After further discussion, the defendant stated that he had changed his mind about speaking to Brownell because a lawyer had not come to see him and that he had felt, quote, left for dead, end quote. Brownell responded with, 
shitty feeling. After further discussion, the defendant was read his rights, which he acknowledged and waived. Here, the appellate court concluded that the defendant's explanation as to why he changed his mind about speaking with Brownell did not constitute an ambiguous or equivocal request for counsel. The court reasoned that the defendant's explanation of Brownell that he had changed his mind about speaking with the police because a lawyer had not come to see him after the first interview and that he felt, quote, left for dead, end quote, would not have caused a reasonable officer to construe that explanation as an ambiguous request for counsel. As that statement did not contain any of the conditional or hedging terms that have been deemed ambiguous or equivocal invocations of that right, and the defendant made no clear and unequivocal request for an attorney. Moreover, the conclusion that the defendant's explanation was not a request for counsel was supported by the circumstances of the two interviews, including uh, at the outset of the second interview, the defendant's indication that he did not want to be recorded his expressed concern for his safety, and his reluctance to identify certain individuals involved in other criminal activity. And at the first interview, the defendant, who Brownell knew to have been involved in previous criminal matters, had unambiguously invoked his right to counsel. This is a key fact, which resulted in the termination of that previous interview. So that takes care of that claim. The defendant also claimed that the court abused its discretion and violated his constitutional rights by admitting into evidence certain inculpatory portions of his statement while excluding related contextual portions. So the first portion contained Brownell showing the defendant a photograph from the surveillance video taken outside of the cafe on the night of the shooting and the defendant identifying himself in the photograph. Defense counsel had objected to that portion, contending that it would be taken out of context by the jury, and then argued that additional portions of the recording, which included the defendant's identification of the shooter as a man dressed in all white clothing, should be admitted into evidence pursuant to Section 1-5 of the Connecticut Code of Evidence. The court declined to admit these additional portions into evidence and and admitted the first portion proffered by the state. The defendant argued that, quote, the court permitted the prosecution to create a misleading impression for the jury by allowing the state to introduce inculpatory portions of the defendant's statement while omitting portions wherein he denied involvement in the shooting incident, end quote. The defendant uh, further alluded to claims of constitutional error by specifically asserting that the court's ruling amounted to violations of due process and the right to present a complete defense, and therefore the defendant was entitled to a new trial. The state in response maintained that the court did not abuse its discretion or violate the defendant's constitutional rights with respect to its rulings regarding the admissibility of portions of the defendant's police interview. The appellate court consequently addressed whether the evidence was properly admitted and excluded uh, with respect to the various portions of the police interview. So the standard of review here is that, quote, to the extent a trial court's ruling regarding admission of evidence is based on an interpretation of the Connecticut Code, the standard of review is plenary, end quote. And the appellate court will review the trial court's decision to admit evidence if premised on a correct view of the law for an abuse of discretion, citing State versus 
Norman P, 169 Connecticut Appellate 616. So let's get to our holding here on this claim. Section 1-5, Section B of the Connecticut Code of Evidence provides that, quote, when a statement is introduced by a party, another party may introduce any other part of the statement, whether or not otherwise admissible, that the court determines, considering the context of the first part of the statement, ought in fairness to be considered with it, end quote. The appellate court has also stated that the purpose of section 1-5 subsection B is to ensure that the statements placed in evidence are not taken out of context, citing Cousins versus Nelson, 87 Connecticut Appellate 611. Furthermore, our Supreme Court in State versus Norman P stated that to apply section 1-5 subsection B, a court identifies which portions of the statement were initially introduced in evidence, sets forth the argument of the party proffering the remainder as to how the partial introduction distorts the meaning of the whole, and then juxtaposes that initial offering with the remainder. If the addition of the remainder alters the meaning of the initial offering or demonstrates that the initial portion was taken out of context, then section uh, 1-5 subsection B requires that the remainder be admitted into evidence. So after applying this to the present facts, the appellate court concluded that the trial court did not abuse its discretion with respect to its evidentiary rulings regarding the admission of certain portions of Brownell's interview with Mr. Knox. The appellate court here reasoned that the trial court's decision to admit only that portion of the interview in which the defendant identified himself in a photograph taken from a surveillance video on the night of the shooting and not admit the portion the defendant sought to introduce in which he identified another man in the photograph as the shooter did not violate section 1-5 because the evidence the defendant sought to introduce did not change or alter the fact that he identified himself as present at the scene and would not demonstrate that the portion of the interview that was introduced had been taken out of context. Moreover, after reviewing the defendant's brief, the appellate court further concluded that he failed to establish that the court's evidentiary rulings violated his constitutional rights. The court, having determined that the court, the trial court, properly admitted the evidence at issue and that section 1-5 did not require the admission of the evidence proffered by the defendant regarding the uh, identification of the man dressed in white as the shooter was not persuaded by the defendant's declarations of constitutional error to conclude that constitutional violations had occurred. So in the end, Knox prevails on one claim and suffers defeat on the other. But nonetheless, this week's cases bring two very important victories if you're a criminal defense lawyer. So good news here on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast Thanksgiving week. I'm Dan Lage. See you next week. And now, Ryan McKean with your personal injury law update. Next up, injury law cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut trial firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. 
Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here, and today I'm going to talk about two cases that were released this week involving Connecticut tort law. The first is Doe versus Flanagan. It is AC 42567, and the decision was rendered by Judge Bright. This appeal concerns a teenage boy who brought a action against the city of Waterbury after a Waterbury police officer handcuffed him and watched him be sexually assaulted by a third party. The plaintiff claimed that the city was liable to him pursuant to statute for the damages he sustained as a result of the officer's negligence and appealed from the summary judgment motion rendered by the trial court in favor of the city. The appellate court ultimately agreed with the plaintiff and concluded that genuine issues of material fact existed. Now, for the facts of this case, the plaintiff was a minor under the age of 16 years, and Flanagan was employed as a police officer by the city of Waterbury. Flanagan took part in Police Explorers, a program run by the Waterbury Police Department in which young people between the ages of 14 and 21 would meet with Waterbury Police Department on a monthly basis in order to learn more about becoming police officers. As a part of the program, Flanagan frequently handcuffed the program's participants as a way to demonstrate the use of handcuffs. Beginning in July 2005, the plaintiff worked with Charles Foley, I'm sorry, Fullen Wiley at his electronics store in Waterbury. Flanagan was friends with Fullen Wiley and frequently visited the store to hang out, often doing so well on duty. Well, at the store, Flanagan would horse around with the young people there, including Fullen Wiley's son and the plaintiff. In addition to horseplay, Flanagan on more than one occasion would handcuff young people at the store because they wanted to see what it was like. In the spring of 2006, Flanagan stopped at Fullen Wiley's store on his way to Police Explorers. At the store, the plaintiff asked Flanagan to demonstrate the use of his handcuffs. Flanagan pushed the plaintiff to the ground and handcuffed him. While the plaintiff was restrained on the ground, Fullen Wiley kneeled on the plaintiff's back and pushed a sex toy against his buttocks. Flanagan watched this incident unfold and took photographs of Fullen Wiley and the plaintiff. In October 2009, the plaintiff commenced the underlying action against Flanagan in the city of Hart in the city for the injuries he sustained arising out of the incident. On January 22, 2015, the plaintiff filed the operative four-count complaint. Counts 1 through 3 were settled against Flanagan himself leaving only the fourth count of the complaint, which alleged that pursuant to Connecticut General Statutes 52-557-N, the city was liable to the plaintiff for the carelessness and negligence of Flanagan. On November 22, 2016, the city filed a motion for summary judgment. 
and the court rendered partial summary judgment in the city's favor. Subsequently, the plaintiff withdrew his remaining claims and appealed to the appellate court. On appeal, the plaintiff claimed that the trial court erred in concluding there were no genuine issue as to material fact as to whether Flanagan engaged in willful rather than negligent misconduct when he pushed the plaintiff to the ground and handcuffed him. And two, the identifiable victim subject to imminent harm exception to government immunity did not apply to the plaintiff's allegation that Flanagan failed to protect the plaintiff from being sexually harassed by Fullenweiley. The appellate court's review of a trial court's decision to grant motion for summary judgment is plenary. As to claim one, for negligent or willful misconduct, the plaintiff argued there was a genuine issue of material fact with regard to whether, when he pushed the plaintiff to the ground and handcuffed him. The trial court reasoned that, with respect to the party's evidence, the plaintiff's unwillingness to participate in Flanagan's demonstration supported its determination that Flanagan engaged in willful misconduct. The city similarly relied on the fact that Flanagan pushed the plaintiff to the ground just prior to handcuffing him as conclusive evidence that Flanagan's conduct exceeded mere negligence. The appellate court recognized a general rule that governments and their agents are immune from liability for acts performed in, in their official duties. The court also stated that whether a party's conduct is willful is a question of fact, and the term willful has been used to describe conduct deemed highly unreasonable or indicative of bad faith. The appellate court held that the trial court erred in granting the city's motion for summary judgment as to the plaintiff's claim that Flanagan negligently pushed him to the ground and handcuffed him, concluding that the plaintiff proffered sufficient evidence to demonstrate the existence of genuine issues of material fact with respect to whether Flanagan's conduct was willful or negligent. Such evidence included a written statement by Fullenweiley to the police stating that Flanagan would horse around with the young people, including the plaintiff, at his store and fun, and even took out his taser to scare the plaintiff and others. A statement by Flanagan to the police stating he did not think it was a big deal to demonstrate the use of handcuffs on the plaintiff because that was what I was going to teach the explorers that night. A copy of Flanagan's performance appraisal from the Waterbury Department of Human Resources dated November 29, 2004, and a copy of an interdepartmental memorandum dated November 6, 2005 critiquing certain aspects of Flanagan's performance. Those documents indicated that Flanagan has, on occasion, exercised poor judgment and has shown a pattern of being insensitive to citizens that he interacts with at times he has used poor judgment when discretion is needed. Additionally, the appellate court stated that the mere fact that Flanagan's use of handcuffs was in violation of city policy did not make his conduct willful per se, reasoning that whether a jury engaged, whether a party engaged in Willful, wanton, or reckless conduct cannot be determined simply by ascertaining whether an actor violated a policy, but rather it requires a determination of the actor's state of mind when violating the policy. As to the first claim, the appellate court also addressed the city's argument in the alternative that it should affirm the judgment of the trial court on the ground that Flanagan was not acting within the scope of his employment when he pushed the plaintiff to the ground and handcuffed him. 
The appellate court noted that it had previously held that an o- police officer's actions had occurred in the course of duties if such actions took place within the period of employment at a place where the employee could reasonably be and while the employee is reasonably fulfilling his duties of employment or something incremental to it. Accordingly, the appellate court was not persuaded that by the city's argument that there was no evidence in the record that Flanagan was acting within the scope of his employment at the time because Flanagan's actions took place within the scope, within the period of his employment. The location of the assault was within Flanagan's normal jurisdiction, and Flanagan frequently visited this location both well on and off duty at the time of the assault. Flanagan was on his way to an activity related to his role as police officer in which he demonstrated the use of handcuffs as he was dressed in full police uniform issued by the city, including the belt, with his handcuffs and weapons. As to claim two, on the issue of identifiable victim subject to imminent harm, the plaintiff's second claim was that the trial court erred in rendering summary judgment in favor of the city on the grounds that there was no genuine issue of material fact as to whether it was apparent to Flanagan that the plaintiff was identifiable victim subject to imminent harm. The plaintiff has alleged that Flanagan had a duty as a police officer to protect the plaintiff from Full and Wiley's actions, but the court disposed of the claim on governmental immunity grounds, determining that the identifiable victim subject to imminent harm exception did not apply. The appellate court, however, noted that in reaching this conclusion, the trial court considered and answered a dispositive question of law that the city did not raise in its motion for summary judgment. The court then stated that the trial court lacks authority to render summary judgment on grounds not raised or briefed by the parties that do not involve subject matter jurisdiction. Accordingly, the appellate court held that the trial court improperly rendered summary judgment on such grounds because the city never raised this defense in its motion. The appellate court reasoned in response to the plaintiff's allegation that the city was liable for Flanagan's failure to protect him from Full and Wiley's unlawful conduct. The city argued only that it was insulated from liability for Flanagan's conduct under 52-557N because Flanagan's conduct was with was willful and outside the scope of his employment, and therefore the plaintiff never had the opportunity or reason to make the argument that this exception to discretionary act immunity applied to the circumstances of this case. In sum, the judgment was reversed and the case was remanded with direction to deny the city's motion for summary judgment and for further proceedings. Now the second case we have uh, decided by Justice Mullins is from the Connecticut Supreme Court. It's Georges versus OBGYN Services PC, Supreme Court 20170. And this appeal concerns one of the largest childbirth verdicts in Connecticut's history, where a former Norwich family was awarded $4.2 million after a jury determined that during the birth of the family's child, the delivering midwife incorrectly pulled the child from the room, causing several permanent injuries. On appeal to the Supreme Court, the defendants argued that the appellate court improperly dismissed their challenge of the jury's verdict as untimely, and abused its discretion in denying their motion to suspend the rules of practice to permit a late appeal. Although two justices disagreed with the majority's regard 
with the majority regarding the late appeal, the Supreme Court affirmed the judgment. Now, the facts of this case are in the original complaint filed on December 12, 2011, the plaintiffs, uh, Marie Leoma and her minor daughter, Gianna Georges, allege that the midwife, Brenda Gilmore, and her employer, OBGYN Services PC, committed malpractice during Leoma's pregnancy and labor and during the delivery of her daughter, causing her daughter to sustain severe permanent injuries. Prior to trial, on May 16, 2013, the plaintiffs filed an offer of compromise for $2 million, which the defendants did not accept. On October 28, 2016, the jury returned a verdict for the plaintiffs for $4.2 million as against both defendants, and the trial court accepted the verdict that same day. The defendants did not file any post-judgment motions challenging the jury's verdict. On November 8, 2016, the plaintiffs filed motion for statutory offer of compromise and interest and post-judgment interest. On November 28, 2016, as a result of a clerical error, an entry was placed on the case docket stating judgment on verdict for plaintiff. On December 12, 2016, the court awarded the plaintiffs both offer of compromise and post-judgment interest. Regarding the offer of compromise interest, the court concluded that the end date for calculating the interest was a date of judgment rendered and clarified that judgment was rendered on October 28, 2016, the date the verdict was accepted by the court, not November 28, 2016. The court also clarified the docket entry made on November 28, 2016, which referenced November 28th would, was made in error. The court awarded the plaintiffs $1,639,495 in offer of compromise interest. The court also awarded the plaintiffs post-judgment interest to be calculated at 10% per year, commencing on November 17, 2016, 20 days from the date of judgment. On December 16, 2016, the defendants filed an appeal with the appellate court challenging both the jury verdict and the trial court's awards of offer of compromise and post-judgment interest. The plaintiffs filed a motion to dismiss the appeal in part or in the alternative to dismiss the portion of the appeal challenging the jury's verdict, claiming the defendants had failed to file the appeal within 20 days of the date judgment was rendered. The defendants filed an objection to the motion, claiming that the appeal from the judgment rendered in accordance with the jury verdict was timely because they filed it within 20 days of the trial court's December 12, 2016 awards of offer of compromise and post-judgment interest. The defendants also filed a motion to suspend the rules of practice to permit the filing of a late appeal, claiming in the alternative there was good cause to permit the late appeal in light of the significant confusion in the trial court concerning the date the judgment was rendered. The appellate court granted the plaintiff's motion to dismiss and denied the defendant's motion to suspend the rules of practice to permit a late appeal. The appellate court also upheld the trial court's awards of offer of compromise and post-judgment interest. On granting certification, the defendants appealed to the Supreme Court. On appeal, the defendants claimed the appellate court improperly granted in part the plaintiff's motion to dismiss and two, abused its discretion in denying their motion to suspend the rules of practice to permit late appeal. In claim one, uh, the untimely challenge of the jury's verdict, the defendants claim that the appellate court improperly granted the plaintiff's motion to dismiss 
the portion of the defendant's appeal by challenging the jury's verdict because the appeal was timely. The defendants argued the appeal period should be measured from the date of the subsequent decision rather than the date the verdict was accepted, and there was no appealable final judgment until the court awarded offer of compromise and post-judgment interest. The plaintiff's November 8, 2016 motion for interest created a new 20-day appeal period was their argument. For the standard of review, the Supreme Court stated that questions concerning whether a judgment is final for purposes of appeal or whether the 20-day appeal begins to run are questions of law, which its review is plenary. Regarding this claim, the Supreme Court first addressed the issue of whether the date of final judgment for purposes of appeal was October 28, 2016, the date the trial court accepted the jury's verdict. Although it is well settled that the acceptance of the jury verdict at the time it is returned is deemed to constitute a final judgment unless a motion to set aside is later filed. The defendants argue that the judgment did not become final for purposes of appeal when the verdict was accepted because the trial court had yet to determine whether or how much offer of compromise interest should be awarded under Connecticut General Statutes 52-192A. As to this issue, the Supreme Court stated that an offer of compromise interest is punitive rather than compensatory in nature. Moreover, an award of interest under 52-192A is mandatory and the application of 52-192A does not depend on analysis of the underlying circumstances of the case or determination of facts. The Supreme Court therefore concluded that the defendants could not prevail on this claim as a determination of the amount of offer of compromise interest to be awarded is not an essential prerequisite to an appealable final judgment on the merits. The Supreme Court reasoned that although the presence of an unresolved claim for relief can delay the finality of judgment on the merits, offer of compromise interest was not part of the plaintiff's compensation for the alleged wrongdoing or unlawful act that gave rise to the underlying action, and thus a decision regarding the offer of compromise interest does not require an assessment of the merits of the underlying case. The Supreme Court further stated that under 52-192A, trial courts have no discretion to determine if or how much offer of compromise interest should be awarded as the statute requires such interest be awarded when the amount of the verdict is equal or exceeds an offer of compromise and prescribes the precise formula for calculating it. Regarding the first claim, the defendants argued that under practice book section 63-1c1, which provides for the tolling of the 20-day appeal period when a motion is filed within the original 20-day appeal period, seeks an alteration to the terms of the judgment, the plaintiff's motion for offer of compromise interest and post-judgment interest created a new 20-day appeal period for which the defendants could appeal from the judgment rendered in accordance with the jury's verdict. The defendants contended that this new appeal period began to run when the court decided that motion on December 12, 2016. As the plaintiff's motion for offer of compromise and post-judgment interest altered the terms of the judgment under the practice book 63-1C1 because it changed the judgment from initial verdict amount $4.2 million to an offer plus to, to the amount plus offer of compromise interest. The Supreme Court stated that in determining whether a motion 
seeks alteration of terms of judgment, it looks to the substance of the relief sought rather than the motion or the form. The Supreme Court also held that the defendants could not prevail on this claim, concluding that the awards of offer of compromise and post-judgment interest increased the plaintiff's overall recovery. Those awards did not alter the amount of compensatory damages the jury had previously awarded, and accordingly, the plaintiff's motion for such interest did not seek alteration of the judgment within the meaning of practice book section 63-1. Additionally, federal precedent interpreting the analogous federal rule of appellate procedure further supported the view that post-verdict motions for statutory interest do not seek an alteration to the underlying judgment. Accordingly, the Supreme Court held that the appellate court properly dismissed as untimely the, a portion that, the portion of the defendant's appeal challenging the jury verdict. The defendant's next main claim was that the appellate court abused its discretion denying their motion to suspend the rules of practice to permit a late appeal. The Supreme Court began its discussion by stating the rules of practice vest authority in the appellate court and in the absence of jurisdictional barriers, the appellate court exercises discretion in determining whether late appeals should be permitted to be heard. Moreover, if no evidence exists that the appellate court decided the matter so arbitrarily as to vitiate logic or has decided it based on improper or irrelevant factors, its decision must be upheld. In determining whether the appellate court abused its discretion in the appellate case, the Supreme Court examined the defendant's motion to suspend the rules of practice to permit a late appeal in order to assess whether there is good cause under practice book subsections 60-2 and 60-3. The Supreme Court found their justification unconvincing for the following reasons. Despite the defendant's claim that there was widespread confusion in the trial court about the date the judgment was rendered, there was no reasonable basis for any such confusion as the rules of practice directing trial courts to render judgments on jury verdicts and providing that appeal period begins to run when the verdict is accepted plainly should have put the defendant's counsel on notice that when the trial court accepted the verdict on October 28, 2016, and no subsequent motions were filed under the rules of practice governing certain post-verdict motions, a final judgment had been rendered and the 20-day appeal period began to run. In this regard, the erroneous entry placed on the case docket suggesting that judgment had been rendered for the plaintiffs on November 28, 2016 was of no moment because the 20-day appeal period had expired 11 days before that entry appeared on the docket. The appellate court concluded that the, the defendants failed to show good cause on the basis of their claimed good faith belief because there was no appealable judgment that the trial court had issued is this until that the trial court had issued its decision awarding interest on December 12, 2016, as a final judgment principles should have put the defendant's counsel on notice that the offer of compromise interest is not a type of relief that delays finality in the context of practice book sec section 63-1 or Connecticut case law interpreting it remotely suggesting that post-judgment motion for mandatory interest, such as the plaintiff's motion in the present case, altered any aspect of the underlying judgment. The Supreme Court disagreed with the defendants that the size of the verdict, $4.2 million, rendered the appellate court's refusal to hear the appeal as an abuse of discretion, particularly in light 
of the wholly inadequate explanations proffered by the defendants as to why they failed to appeal until approximately one month after the deadline. And although the gravity of the consequences of a dismissal to the appealing party is not wholly irrelevant to a good cause analysis, under the circumstances of this case, the size of the verdict in and of itself did not compel the conclusion that the appellate court abused its discretion. Accordingly, the Supreme Court concluded the appellate court did not abuse its discretion in denying the defendant's motion as they failed to establish good cause. So I think if there's anything that one can take away from these two cases, it is that it is very important to be procedurally precise in litigation, um, to be very aware of when a um, judgment could be appealed and what issues have to be raised um, in summary judgment in order for a court to properly render judgment. Thank you. Next up, family law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referrals stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hi, this is Rich Rockland. Uh, there are no new cases this week, but as soon as there are new cases, we'll have them up and reviewed and ready to go. Have a great week. Do you want to get into social media marketing? Unsure of where to begin? The Firm Flex DIY plan was created for small firm and solo lawyers who want to start social media marketing for their firm but can't commit to the large budgets many agencies charge. In just five minutes a day, with the help of the Firm Flex coaches, you get daily ideas, weekly themes, hashtags, and stock images you can use to post on social media and market your firm. With a private and vibrant Facebook group you can always turn to, the Firm Flex DIY plan gives you the ultimate control over your marketing. By using the Firm Flex DIY program, as well as our weekly coaching and industry leading hacks, you can set your social media up for success, all for around $3 a day. Try it today at GetFirmFlex.com DIY. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating, you can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney J. Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.